What you are about to hear is not, 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 not a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens, coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. 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 Enjoy the show. The show. The show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning, and if you listened to our first few episodes, then you know that over the last few months, my friend Justin Higgins and I and our friends have convened hundreds of conversations, sometimes more than once per day, with up to 30,000 live listeners and participants, where we all hear live and direct from people in the news, in their own voices, in their own words, in long form, and where anyone who wants to can join to ask them a question, share their thoughts, or just listen. We're just now starting to release recorded portions of our live conversations for the first time, and we're grateful to you for joining us. Today, we're very excited to release part of a conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we had with McKay Coppins, who's a writer at The Atlantic and a leading thinker on the intersection of politics and religion in America. There are many things that motivate people to vote or not to vote. Those who stay home often decide the outcome of an election, but among those who do vote, People turn out for a lot of different reasons. And across the country, one major factor that drives many people's voting choices is their religion. There are some religious communities that voted overwhelmingly for President Trump. There are also some that traditionally vote Republican, but did not support President Trump. McKay is a member of the Mormon Church, a distinctly American religion whose members are usually one of the most reliably Republican and conservative religious groups in American politics. However, Many members of the Mormon Church rejected President Trump as a matter of faith. In 2016, he received 20% fewer votes than George Bush received from the same group in 2004. We had a great conversation with McKay about the intersection of faith and politics, about what makes the Mormon Church distinct from other religious groups and its thoughts and its actions, and about what role religious voters are likely to play in the future of the Republican Party itself. We had great audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it. If you subscribe to The Atlantic, you may have seen McKay's cover story last week about a hedge fund that controls more than 200 newspapers. As always, if you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question, or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live or pm101.club. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. You wrote a very poignant piece in The Atlantic about the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Can you briefly describe the American values that are instilled in this uniquely American religion? Yeah, it's interesting. So I I grew up, I'm a lifelong Mormon, Latter-day Saint. I, I'm okay with the term Mormon. The church has kind of distanced itself from it uh, more recently. So it's kind of a divisive topic within Mormonism. Uh, but I'm going to use it throughout this conversation. Um, I grew up Mormon in uh, Massachusetts, where there were very few Mormons. And, uh, you know, like a lot of things that you grow up with, you kind of, um, I, I, I sort of... Um, you know, took it for granted and just assumed it was like normal to be part of a very small minority religion that most of your friends didn't understand. And that was just kind of my experience. And it wasn't really until later in life, um, and really the last, you know, probably decade that I've, uh, started to kind of look into Mormonism as a cultural phenomenon, as a political phenomenon, certainly as a religious movement. And it's looking at it in the context of the broader kind of American experiment, because uh, the the piece that I wrote, I think the headline we ended up going with was the most American religion. And uh, the the idea there is that Mormonism from the very beginning has kind of been defined by its Americanism, right? It's a it's one of very few uh, still flourishing religious movements that was founded in America um, from the very beginning, it held up 
uh, America and its founding documents as kind of almost quasi-canonical works of providence. Uh, there was an idea in Mormonism's founding that America was this kind of promised land um, and that its its core values, pluralism, freedom, um, freedom of religion, uh, were are fundamentally divine ideas that they came from God. And uh, but what what makes it interesting is that Mormons from the very beginning were not really accepted in the broader American experiment. So for the first you know hundred years of Mormonism's history. Uh, believers were kind of being chased across the country and, you know, they would settle in one place, whether it was Ohio or Illinois or Missouri, and they'd stay there for a while. And then the, the people who lived there would start to get restless and the political leaders would turn on them and they'd get expelled from the state and they'd have to move until finally they ended up leaving the American, uh, the, the country and settling in the desert, which would eventually become Utah. Um, and so Mormonism is, is in a lot of ways been defined by this desire to be accepted as fully mainstream in America. And so, um, you know, a lot of what the, the church, the way the church is organized, the, the things that you hear over the pulpit, um, even down to kind of the aesthetics are all kind of, uh, designed to aspire to being all American. So the, the way that the, the congregations are run is uh, very democratic. You, you raise your hand to, uh, to sustain, uh, local leaders. There are the entire, an entire congregation is run by volunteers. There's no paid clergy. Um, there, you know, you don't actually even get to choose which congregation you go to. You are instead assigned to a congregation based on boundaries that are drawn by the church that are designed to um, promote kind of socioeconomic mixing. Um, and so you end up going to church with different kinds of people and uh, you have to kind of work shoulder to shoulder with them. Anyway, it, it's interesting that that was kind of what I was trying to wrestle with is this idea that, you know, Mormonism while uh, aspiring to the uh, core values of America, volunteerism, communalism, uh, shared sacrifice, also kind of finds itself lost in this moment of national fracture because uh, the, the country itself is going through an identity crisis. And Mormons, who have always kind of defined themselves as thoroughly American, are now sort of wondering, well, what do we stand for if the country isn't sure what it stands for? And I just think it's a really interesting moment for the faith. Piggybacking off of what you just said, McKay, about how fractured the country is and how we're kind of looking inward, evangelical Republicans especially had their values tested by Trumpism. Uh, many of them actually moved towards Trump's values, or at least they accepted and praised his values. How did Mormon Republicans respond to this kind of test? And specifically, Trump won only 45 percent of Utah in 2016, which is crazy because it's a very conservative uh, state. And we did have a third party candidate that ran uh, Evan McMullen, who was a conservative. So that is to be noted. But his vote share increased to 58 percent in 2020. Did Trump influence or affect values in the Mormon community? Or is it just solely because of Evan McMullen's candidacy in 16 and then he drops out in yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that you, when you're looking at kind of the Mormon trajectory when it comes to Trump, uh, you have to uh, look at the broader context, right? So in 2016, there was a not the same kind of uh, Mormon uh, flocking to Trump that you saw in a lot of the rest of the religious right. In fact, Mormons were among the most um, anti-Trump conservatives in the Republican Party. So even go back to the Utah Republican primary, Trump came in last place there. Um, they, you know, literally every candidate from Ted Cruz to John Kasich did better than him. 
then when Trump, as you mentioned, won the nomination, they got to the general, Mormons effectively fielded their own protest candidate in Evan McMullen and then uh, voted for him in kind of unprecedentedly large numbers, right? Evan McMullen was not really a factor anywhere in the country except in Utah where he got over 20% of the vote. Um, and so what you had was Mormons in 2016 sort of uh, trying to grapple with, uh, and I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier, what they thought was conservatism and what they thought was republicanism, which was kind of all about, uh, you know, self-sufficiency and, uh, you know, strong family values and, uh, you know, patriotism, um, all of a sudden is being kind of thrown out the window uh, as the rest of their party rallies around this guy, Donald Trump, that Mormons just overwhelmingly did not like. And so, uh, you know, fast forward to 2020, I think what you saw was that there was some movement toward Trump, some consolidation uh, uh, within Mormonism. Um, you know, the, uh, the, like you saw basically throughout the rest of the Republican Party, a lot of the holdouts uh, kind of grudgingly came along. Some of them became enthusiastic supporters. But they still didn't vote for him in nearly the same numbers that they did basically any other Republican presidential candidate. So whereas you saw Trump actually become, you know, perform best among white evangelicals, uh, uh, you know, when you look at the last several Republican presidential candidates, Trump still performed worse than the last 20 years of Republican presidential candidates. Joe Biden performed better in Utah than any Democrat since I believe it was LBJ. Um, you know, you basically had a situation where, um, you, and I think what, what's happening now is that there has definitely been some consolidation. There are definitely Mormons who are feeling that uh, pull between what they believe their faith dictates and what they believe their politics dictate. But there's also just, frankly, a segment of Mormons who, until recently, were the most reliably Republican religious group in America that has now become disenchanted with the GOP and has e either become moderates, independents, or Democrats. And I could say just anecdotally, I know a lot of especially Mormon women and especially kind of Mormon women under the age of like 50 who have sort of become radicalized by the Trump era. And, you know, these are women who gladly voted for John McCain in 2008, Mitt Romney in 2012, uh, have suddenly kind of discovered democratic politics, discovered social justice issues, um, and, and really kind of become rank-and-file Democrats. And so that's been an, an interesting phenomenon to watch. So um, Utah's two senators took very different paths during the era of Trump. And... Uh, McKay, maybe you can just very briefly explain the differences between Mitt Romney and Mike Lee. I view them as completely different. What does the difference in these two senators say about the state of Utah that they can uh, basically elect to pretty different people, at least on the outside? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I think that um, <laughs> Mitt Romney sort of in a lot of ways represents the old guard of kind of Mormon republicanism, right? I mean, you know, he was the 2012 standard bearer of the Republican Party. He kind of embodies a lot of the the core old-fashioned Republican values, right? He's a business guy. He's economically conservative. Um, he's not as moved by social issues. Um, and, and he's fundamentally just polite, right? Like he, he, he is very put off by the vulgarity of the Trump era GOP. Um, at the same time, you have Mike Lee, who also kind of started out more or less in the same place as Mitt Romney in 2016. He did, Mike Lee did not endorse, uh, Mitt, uh, Donald Trump, uh, in 2016, as far as I know, did not vote for him. Um, but somewhere kind of halfway through the Trump presidency decided to get on board and then became an extremely enthusiastic Trump surrogate campaign for him in 2020. Um, and, and, you know, Mike Lee, I guess the, the simplest way to kind of describe those divisions and, and what I think is really interesting is that, 
you know, go back 10 years and Mitt Romney would be considered the establishment Republican. Mike Lee would be considered the insurgent Tea Party outsider, right? That's, that, that was how these two, uh, men kind of defined their political personas. 10 years later, Mitt Romney is on the outside, right? He's on more or less the fringe of the party. He, he is, uh, you know, refused to get on board with Trump. He voted twice for Trump's impeachment. Uh, in the first time he was the only Republican senator to vote for it, for, uh, that impeachment. He was a frequent critic of Donald Trump's throughout the, throughout his presidency and continues to be a critic of the Trump wing of the party. Whereas Mike Lee is now kind of formally in the mainstream of the party, which is, you know, he's a MAGA Republican. And I, I think that that inversion of the dynamics within the party has been really interesting to me uh, to watch as somebody who covered the GOP for 10 years, because a lot of the kind of sources and subjects that I've gotten to know, especially my career as a political reporter, who were very much kind of insider power players in 2012, 13, 14, are now kind of on the never Trump fringe of the party and sort of on the outside looking in. That's a great uh, just picture you painted. I never really thought of it like that with them flipping the outsider insider role. I wanted to follow up uh, on Mitt Romney. You referenced his presidential run. And you covered Mitt Romney's presidential run. Well, when he ran as the first Mormon presidential nominee, there was a ton of focus on his religion. Could a Mormon run and win? Should a Mormon run and win? Uh, So on and so forth. How should the media cover a candidate's religion? Should it be ignored or can it be acknowledged and discussed without reinforcing or amplifying stereotypes? And I really got to highlight in the age of social media, in the age of Facebook and Twitter, will the media just covering religion fan the flames for bigotry, prejudice, hatred, so on and so forth? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one that I've had a lot of experience with uh, up close, right? It's interesting. In 2012, uh, I covered Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, and it was kind of my uh, big break in in political media. I... I had been at Newsweek, um, and I was writing about politics right out of college, but as kind of a, like, the lowest man on the totem pole. Um, and, you know, having a lot of fun, but I, I was, I was hired by Ben Smith then at BuzzFeed to, um, to cover the Romney campaign, basically, and spent a lot of my time writing about Mitt Romney's religion. So, I guess the the direct answer to your question is, um, I don't think a candidate's religious faith should be ignored. In fact, I think, if anything, we should give it more attention uh, when it's clear that it's foundational to how a candidate kind of sees the wor- world, as it was in the case of Mitt Romney. I think the problem is not that there's too much coverage or too little coverage of most candidates' uh, personal faith. It's that the coverage is just bad a lot of the time, right? Like, the, the, I, I think that a lot of things are happening. One is that often the reporters who are assigned to cover uh, to cover a candidate's uh, religious faith are, you know, have very little experience with religion themselves. Newsrooms are overwhelmingly secular. Um, and so they don't kind of understand how how religious faith is experienced in a kind of day-to-day uh, way. Instead, they're like writing about it as an abstract, uh, uh, you know, academic exercise. So I think that's one problem. Um, I think another problem is that, uh, like you mentioned, there is a, a strong incentive in this media environment to um, sensationalize uh, you know, everything about a candidate's biography, but especially religion. So it's very easy to go and kind of cherry pick the weirdest sounding or most extreme sounding or just kind of most exotic seeming part of a religious faith and then 
kind of slap that onto a can a headline and say, look, this candidate believes this crazy thing, right? Whereas that, you know, often I can say from experience that the weirdest seeming things about a given religion are often things that actual members of that religion never hear about at church and may not even know anything about. So a- anyway, I, I don't think the answer though is to not cover it. I, I think, like I said, in with people like Mitt Romney, people like Joe Biden right now, you know, current president, religious faith can be enormously influential on how they grew up, on how they see the world, on how they make decisions. And so it would actually be irresponsible for the political press to ignore it altogether. But I do think that we could do more to bring uh, people of faith into the process, you know, and, and I, I want to make clear, there are some very good reporters and writers out there doing this work. Um, my colleague, Emma Green at the Atlantic writes about religion very kind of sensitively. I think, um, uh, Ruth Graham at the New York times, I think is a great religion reporter. So there are people doing it, but I think we could use a lot more of it. And not that she's a religious reporter, but we actually had your colleague from the Atlantic on, Liz Bruning, to talk about Catholicism in politics. So this is kind of the sister conversation to that. Yeah, Liz um, no, is I, great. She was fantastic. Um, so I, I, I guess you kind of outlined some of the values of Mormonism. You're using the term, so I'm going to say that that's okay for me to use it. Um, absolutely Mormon- not, Justin. <laughs> I, I can't believe, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, so w- what role, if any, does Mormonism play, uh, Mormon influence have of helping move the GOP past the Trump era? And specifically I ask because you did outline the values uh, of the Mormon religion. And when people think of the anti-Trump members of Congress, they think Mitt Romney and then maybe like three or four in the House, Kinzinger, Cheney. But people even like me, until I read your column, forget about Governor Cox, forget about Utah just begging for more refugees and immigrants to help out the the Afghanistan refugees. And really, for the most part, the state espousing a different type of conservatism. So it's not just Mitt Romney, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of conservatives in Utah that have a different um, set of values than the Trump Republican. Yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? So like Utah, I think, is the best sort of laboratory for a sort of uh, Trump-averse version of Republican politics in 2021, right? Uh, you You have, obviously, Mitt Romney is the senator, uh, one of the senators representing the state. You also have the governor, Spencer Cox, who has kind of done everything in his power to distance himself from uh, Trumpism. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the state's policy toward refugees is basically uh, to constantly be requesting that more refugees be sent to the state. They have a very uh, kind of, uh, in fact, actually, I talked to, any mom who spent many years uh, serving in, at a mosque in Salt Lake City who said that when refugees would arrive uh, at the mosque um, from kind of war-torn countries, there was just this, like, you know, well-oiled machine that went in, that kind of churned into gear where people would show up with casseroles and uh, furniture. And it was both the government, the state government, but also the local Mormon church um, who, who would like immediately help settle the refugees, find them jobs, make sure that they were kind of plugged into the community. And it wasn't, you know, that I think a lot of people who would hear about that would say, oh, so they're just trying to convert these people to Mormonism. It, it really wasn't like a, a conversion thing. It was really that there's this Mormon, this deep seated Mormon idea that more early Mormons were essentially refugees, that they were cast out of their own country uh, and, you know, had to kind of settle in the desert and that they now feel like it's their responsibility to help out refugees. And so anyway, there, there, it's just when I, you talk about it, it feels so antithetical to where most of the Republican party is right now. And I guess the question that I have is how long can Mormon conservatism or Utah conservatism hold out uh, as kind of this island um, in a sea of, you know, 
nativism and right-wing nationalism and xenophobia and immigrant bashing and racism, um, like, can, can it hold out or will it eventually kind of collapse in on itself and be overwhelmed by the broader forces in the party? I mean, you, you certainly already see some of it happening. Um, and I guess I don't know the answer. I mean, it's possible that, um, as with every kind of, every other kind of phase of Republican politics over the past century, that this era too will end and that the party will move in a more kind of kinder, gentler direction. Uh, but it's hard to see that path now. And I think in the meantime, a lot of observers are worried that uh, the the kind of Mormon holdouts and, and certainly other holdouts in the party will eventually just kind of be subsumed or leave the party altogether. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm watching. Yeah, we had George Will on who has, you know, a wealth of experience in conservatism and he's on the optimistic side. So um, it was nice to hear that. I heard him. that. I heard that. I, I, I guess, you know, with, when you've been covering this stuff as long as he has, you have a kind of longer view, I think that, which I think is good, right? I think it's very easy for us to get overwhelmed by the politics of the moment. Um, so I'm going to switch gears here to the media, McKay. You're a very close observer of the media um, and specifically conservative media. My question is, where is where actually is the center of gravity in conservative media today? Is it Fox, Fox News? Is it OAN? Um, specific online outlets? Uh, who are the most important players who are the, and who are the up and coming players to watch? So is it Ben Shapiro? Is it Tucker Carlson? Or is it somebody that maybe, you know, the not close observers aren't really following? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have, I guess, a boring answer to this and a more interesting answer. And I'll start with the boring answer, but I'll be, I'll be brief, which is that still, you know, the person who's driving the conservative media conversation on a daily basis, uh, is, is Tucker Carlson, right? And so the, you know, the, the Fox News primetime lineup continues to reign supreme, has an en enormous amount of influence on the rest of the conservative media. Uh, Tucker, who is somebody I've interviewed and, you know, talked to over the years, has certainly kind of shifted his politics to be in line with the Trumpian politics of the moment. Um, which is not the first time he's done that, but he is, uh, you know, he is kind of a spokesman for, uh, the, the kind of right wing of the Republican party right now. And I think that he's probably the most influential, uh, on a day to day basis. Uh, and then I, you know, the other one, Ben Shapiro, I think you can't ignore. Um, he is sort of emerging as the, I think the, you know, basically, I think you could say he's taken the place of like a Rush Limbaugh, right? So uh, he has a talk radio show. I don't think he has nearly the same reach on just uh, terrestrial radio, but his podcast is hugely popular on the right. Uh, he's young. He has these videos, uh, you know, at least pre-pandemic had these videos that would constantly go viral of him. Uh, you know, fighting with campus liberals at various universities and colleges. And, uh, and so he's kind of a hero on the right as well. But I, I would say another place to watch for kind of where conservative media is moving is to look at kind of the turning point crowd. So turning point USA is the, uh, conservative college, uh, organization, national organization. Uh, the head of it is a guy named Charlie Kirk. A lot of you are probably familiar with. Uh, uh, Benny Johnson is another person who's very popular in that world. And they have, you know, they, they do a lot of the, the kind of more traditional conservative media stuff. You know, Benny, who I actually worked with at BuzzFeed in an entirely different life. Um, uh, you know, he, a previous era of his career. Um, he has a, you know, a, a show, a weekly talk show on Newsmax, but where he has the most influence is on Instagram. Um, and on Instagram, I think he has, you know, a couple million followers. He's constantly churning out conservative memes. And I think that a lot of where conservative media is headed is in these kind of the meme wars, right? The, these, uh, people who are, 
uh, really adept at kind of speaking the native language of uh, social media. And so he's constantly posting kind of uh, memes that are ridiculing Joe Biden, uh, you know, uh, memes that are making Donald Trump look awesome, uh, meme, you know, videos or kind of uh, or, or clips or gifts or whatever that are designed to uh, make uh, kind of drive the conservative message on any given uh, issue that that's where I think uh, you're going to see a lot of the kind of next generation of conservative media stars come out of is not from, you know, talk radio or cable news, but people who have gotten really good at, uh, you know, churning out these kind of uh, trollish, <laughs> this trollish content on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Uh, that That's where I think you're going to see a lot of the media stars in, in, in the coming years come. Uh, my last question is you wrote another cool piece about the dynamics of the Trump family. And I was wondering if you could kind of briefly go in before we get into the audience, if you could go into the relationship between uh, Donald Trump and Don Jr. Because I thought uh, Donald Trump loved Don Jr. And he was his favorite aside from Ivana. Um, and also, what do you think Donald Trump would do if John du Don Jr. ran for office, which is a possibility? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, when I was first decided to start writing that story about the kind of inner workings and infighting uh, in the Trump family, this was in 2018, I think, when I first started working on it. Uh, everyone still was kind of locked into the idea that Ivanka was the heir apparent, the heiress apparent to Donald Trump, right? She was the one in the White House. She was his clear favorite. She was definitely at that period, the second most famous Trump. Um, but what I found in my reporting uh, was that it, as much as Trump wanted Ivanka to be his heir and kind of follow in his footsteps and be the next successful political Trump, um, Don Jr. was the one who really had the ear for it and the stomach for it, the one who understood the Trump base in a way that Ivanka didn't. Um, and, 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 you know, now that's pretty clearly apparent, right? Anybody who's watching politics now knows that Don Jr. is kind of the MAGA folk hero. Um, and I, you know, I, I've wondered whether he would end up running, uh, for office at some point. I reported in that piece, which was, uh, I think on the cover of the Atlantic. Wow. A couple of years ago now. Time, time, time has no meaning. We are anymore, getting but, old, McKay. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, I, I reported in that piece that he had actively considered running for a uh, Senate or governor in a Western state like Montana, uh, Don Jr. had, um, but, you know, had decided not to go through with it, at least for the moment. I would not be surprised if he ended up running for something at some point. I could also see him uh, deciding to kind of install himself as a sort of kingmaker figure, you know, uh, in the party. But, you know, all of this is sort of contingent on what happens with Donald Trump, right? And and this was always the thing hovering over that reporting, which was like, the kids all had their own plans and things that they wanted to do, but they also knew that they had to get their dad's blessing for everything. And their dad was never ready to get off the stage, right? So like, it, the, the hard thing for the next generation of Trumps is that they don't know if their dad will you know, bristle at the idea of one of them being in the spotlight and then decide to kind of shove them out of it. And so uh, everybody is always sort of tiptoeing around Trump in that family, uh, waiting to see what he wants them to do, competing for his affection, competing for his respect, asking his blessing. And, uh, you know, I think that that dynamic continues. Um, so for questions tonight, we will go to Akshob first and then Fiona next. Hey, thank you so much for that uh, riveting conversation. Um, I suppose my conversation more con questions more on Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, given that we often forget that the Republican predecessor to Trump in the election was Romney, and back then, and not too long ago, a decade ago, we made Romney as the scariest voice of the Republican Party. And you know, here it was a Harvard-educated, Bain person who was seen as out of touch with the workforce and governed Massachusetts as a very 
liberal governor and you know almost had obama like healthcare plan which of course he was trying to run against in 2012 but how much of it was also the fact that he had to constantly state in every primary that he had pushed back from members of his own party because of his faith that people misunderstood his faith and sometimes i even read an op-ed which said that romney would have won as a democrat being mormon i wanted to your take on that and just as a small side note we also forget about the other mormon candidate in the 2012 primaries uh, john huntsman where does he feature in Repub- in mormon politics in the imagination of mormon politics too thanks yeah that's a great question thanks for that uh, yeah so first to, to your first point I, you know it, it is funny to think about that 2012 campaign i i mean probably most people listening don't even remember that much about it. It's kind of seared into my memory because I was covering it every day. I was out on the campaign trail for a year. Uh, but it, it's funny to look back at the campaign controversies of 2012 um, and kind of see how quaint they were by comparison to everything that would follow in politics. You know, there there were several news cycles dominated by Mitt Romney saying during a debate that uh, to increase the number of women who worked in the state government when he was governor of Massachusetts, he had had his aides bring him binders full of women, um, which was awkward phrasing, admittedly, but, you know, not really sus- substantively problematic. But literally, I think we talked about that for like 72 hours on the campaign trail. I, I mean, compare that to any like random tweet that Donald Trump sent out for five years and you'll see how kind of uh, silly it was in retrospect. Um, But I do think that, you know, Mitt Romney throughout the 2012 primaries had to contend with the fact that the largest segment of the Republican base, which is white evangelicals, uh, did not like the fact that he was Mormon. Some of them you know, adamantly, you know, um, opposed the fact him because of his religion. Uh, for a lot of others, it was just kind of a, it was in the con list, right? If you were making a pros and cons list. And, and so he had to do this awkward dance throughout the 2012 election where he just, he made a decision and his consultants made a decision that it was best to never talk about his religion. Um, because they didn't want to alienate uh, conservative evangelicals and they didn't want to make his faith part of the story. Uh, they didn't want to, you know, have to answer questions about it. And um, and I understood the political logic, but what that meant was that basically they took away the most humanizing part of him, right? And it, it contributed to this idea that Mitt Romney was kind of a robot, right? Like he was this, you know, uh, job slashing, you know, a business guy who didn't have any soul and didn't have, you know, uh, any kind of personal worldview that he was a flip flopper. And, you know, some of the attacks on him were fair, but the, the idea that he didn't have kind of a personal core, I think, was shaped by the fact that he refused to talk about his faith for a lot of the campaign. And that was his personal core. He, he is a man of enormous faith. Uh, he was shaped by that faith and he never talked about it. So anyway, I think that that's, that, that, that was something that he had to contend with. Um, John Huntsman was an interesting, uh, figure. I actually little, <laughs> I, I, I have, I kind of owe him a debt of, uh, gratitude because my first political scoop, uh, was the fact that he was planning to return home from China where he was serving as an ambassador uh, under President Obama and that he planned to run for president in 2012. Um, I kind of stumbled upon that when I was like a 23-year-old, 24-year-old writer at Newsweek. And uh, it was kind of my first big story. Um, he ended up not having, uh, you know, nearly the the run that Mitt Romney did. He He kind of flamed out early in the primaries. Uh, but he, he remained a kind of interesting figure. Um, he's much more, I, I think, you know, in 2012, we would say he was more moderate than Mitt Romney. Um, less, you know, less zealous, I think, in his, his religious faith. Um, but, you know, a very kind of smart guy, uh, with a lot of experience. And one of the strangest things is that in 2016, once Trump won, um, you know, Mitt Romney ended up being the one who was kind of on the outside, uh, looking in, having been like a big critic of Donald Trump. John Huntsman, a lot of people forget this, ended up serving as Trump's ambassador to Russia. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think had probably a very strange experience for the couple years he did that. So, uh, it's a lesson in politics that the, the people who you think have kind of gone away for good, they've never really gone away for good. They always end up finding their way back into the, uh, into the fray. And so, especially if, you know, we're talking about media, if you're a reporter covering this stuff, it's good to always kind of keep an eye on the people that you covered early on because they might become relevant later on. Yeah. Thanks, McKay. Just a small follow-up. I remember that the binders full of women tweet uh, that, obviously. But I think for Romney, his, one of his biggest coup de grace was saying, corporations are people, my friend. And I think the Obama campaign had a field day with that. Oh, and, yeah. And John Huntsman spoke in Mandarin. I think that was almost <laughs> thought dip on stage, you know. Well, a great Mandarin speaker, but uh, I don't think that did him favors with the GOP Tea Party at that time. <laughs> Thank you for that Aksha. We will go to Fiona and then we will go to Kelly. Fiona, over to you. Uh, hello. Hi. Um, I, I'm just going to you know, have a very quick question. Actually, you know, uh, I'm um, living in Canada and I lived in, a, um, in Alberta. That is the big population of Mormons. And uh, as far as uh, I know, and I did my research on them, you know, there are um, anti-Trudeau Trump lovers and they are mostly have, uh, you know, US, U.S. citizen, you know, U.S. passport and they are they have, you know, businesses and lands in U.S., in, especially in Utah, too. So I'm just wondering, you know, what is going to be your thought about the Mormons in Canada? Because there are um, more than, you know, 200,000 Mormons in Canada and they are mostly living in an area that there are anti-Trudeau's, conservatives and Trump lovers. I'm curious, Fiona. So, are are the the Mormons that you know in Canada? Are they? You said they have U.S. passports. Are most of them American born, or the the? Or, you know, are they from America? Uh, not really. Some of them, but they are mostly Canadian born. But because you know they don't want to spend the winter time in uh, Alberta, that's very cold. They normally have the business and also houses, and also they have a you know green card. And some of them they have a you know the U.S. passport in uh, Utah. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not that surprised to hear that they're conservatives. And my guess is that their conservatism and their, their general, uh, you know, Trump support probably is much more, um, noticeable in Alberta, right? Uh, compared to like in, in some of the more conservative U.S. states that they tend to be centered. So, you know, I, all of this is relative. And like, I, I always try to make this point when I'm talking about Mormons that, you know, a majority of them did vote in 2020 at least. And I think in 2016 for, for Donald Trump. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, Mormons as this bulwark against Trumpism when you're looking at the broader national landscape. It's more that you have to look at the deltas or look at like the, the movement. And so what, what you see if you look at the numbers is that, um, you know, 20 years ago, 70 to 80% of Mormons were voting for whoever the Republican presidential candidate was. Uh, in, you know, fast forward to today, you can only count on like 60% of them to vote for, for, for Trump. So, you know, you're still going to find a lot of Mormon Trump supporters, but what you see is that a significant portion of Mormons are moving away from the Trump era Republican Party. Um, and, and I think that that trend is likely to continue as these younger generations become a larger share of, of Mormonism. Thank you, Fiona. We will go to Kelly. And then after Kelly, we will go to John. Kelly, over. Thanks, Justin. And uh, thanks for, for being here, McKay. It's, it's been interesting listening to you for sure. Um, my question is, uh, regarding, I guess specifically when you were talking about like the Ben Shapiro, the turning point um, kind of era of politics and how so many people have leaned into that. Um, do you think that part of part of the popularity uh, isn't so much an, an extremism or or even um, truly being interested in every single thing and every single part of the ideology that maybe you would hear listening to, to these certain people um, as as much as it is not wanting to maybe take part 
in media, listen to media, uh, even support media that, I mean, in, in so many cases, uh, criticizes even moderate conservatives for their viewpoints um, in a way that it's, it's almost difficult to just be the average person who may have traditional values or, you know, fiscal conservative ideas. I'm curious if you think that in the future, if you remove the Trumpism aspect of it, obviously you have the populism that will remain, but do you think that there's going to be a divide long-term in maybe whether or not the Republican party leans into the tradition or leans into the, you know, fiscal conservative conservatism side of things, A, and and B, what does it say to you right now about how many people are engaged in those media, um, those two media sources specifically that you brought up? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, I, I, I think that it's fair to say that a lot of people who consume conservative media, um, you know, feel alienated by mainstream media outlets, right? Um, if you are maybe a moderate, but, you know, a fiscal conservative, um, you know, Republican-leaning person who uh, doesn't really care for all the kind of trolling antics, uh, but also doesn't agree with a lot of kind of progressive orthodoxies or, or liberal ideas, um, it, it might be hard for you to uh, say, you know, listen, watch MSNBC or... Uh, or, you know, read a lot of the kind of largest uh, national media outlets. I think that's fair to say. But I guess where what, what I would say is that, like, if you don't like the kind of trolling tenor of the, you know, Ben Shapiro's and, uh, you know, uh, Benny Johnson's of the world, um, you have options, right? Like, it's not as if these people are just reading George Will and, uh, you know, the, the more sober writers at National Review or subscribing to the Weekly Standard, which actually doesn't even exist anymore. You know, like the, a lot of the, the, I think that the people who are drawn to, um, to, you know, tr the Turning Point crowd and Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson are sort of savoring the, uh, the kind of, catharsis that comes with watching entertaining people own the libs, right? And uh, I, I, I could buy that there is a pipeline from being sort of a, uh, you know, a kind of reasonable Republican being radicalized to a certain extent by not being able to see your viewpoint represented in the mainstream media. And then you kind of fall down the rabbit hole toward uh, the Benny Johnsons of the world. I, I think that there's, you know, maybe, uh, something to that. And there probably are people like that. But I also think that, you know, um, so much of modern conservative media is really not about ideology or ideas at all. Uh, it's about, um, it's about trolling and provocation and, um, you know, making making the other side look stupid right and you know to be fair there's a lot of that on the left as well and, and but anyway it, it's kind of this 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 culture war mentality that i think um grips so much of the conservative media and that a lot of people are drawn to i don't think that it's uh, in other words i think it's a feature not a bug um that said i do think that there are uh you know there are people who if you're if you're looking for reasonable conservative viewpoints that are not kind of saturated in uh, Trump style trolling, there are places like the Dispatch. There are places like, uh, like I said, National Review. There are smart conservative writers out there like Ross Douthat at the New York Times, who can articulate your ideas, defend your position without the kind of performative cruelty that seems to uh, define so much of the conservative media at this moment. Uh, on that note, we will go to uh, Mr. John Gunnison. Then we're going to go to Jim. Thanks so much, McKay. I still remember a story that you wrote a few years ago about failing upward. And the example that you used was Sean Spicer, uh, who is a guy that wasn't very widely known. Justin knew him. Some of us knew him. Uh, but he became a national figure by making a fool of himself 
And he got a lucrative book deal. He got reality TV out of this exposure. And it seems like in today's attention economy, we have this real problem with mediocre people using notoriety to cash in and using foolishness and ridiculous behavior to cash in. And in some ways, this is one of the biggest phenomenons of the Trump era. We've seen so many people make ridiculous fools of themselves and, and ride it all the way to the bank. And as a media watcher, as someone with a sophisticated understanding about the media, I want to know, what can we do to break this cycle? Is there any way that we can prevent the creation of these kinds of perverse incentives in what we reward? Um, is this just something that we're going to have to live with in the age of 24-hour news and social media? Or is there any way to prevent these kinds of incentives and to allow people to get rich off of being ridiculous? <laughs> it's a great question, and I don't have a great answer. I guess instead of giving you a, a kind of a solution, I will just, you know, give a little bit more of my diagnosis, which is I would say that, yes, the past five years uh, have given us some very pronounced examples of this phenomenon uh, in the Trump era. That Sean Spicer example is is one of my favorite. And I'm glad that you mentioned that piece because it's one of my favorite pieces. It was a very short one. It was basically just a dispatch from Sean Spicer's book party in Washington. Um, but it, it like perfectly captured, like if somebody in a hundred years asked, you know, asked me <laughs> as a 130 year old or whatever, uh, you know, which one piece of your, of, of yours best kind of encapsulates the Trump era, I might point to that one. Um, <laughs> just because it's, it's, you know, so fully absurd and depressing and decadent. Uh, but what I would say is that these this phenomenon stretches back well beyond the Trump era. And I think there's two different things happening. One is that, um, you know, Washington has kind of always been built around allowing people to fail upward, at least for, you know, maybe since the mid-century. Um, if you become enough of a fixture in Washington, uh, whether in, in either party or in the media, um, there are very few scandals, very few gaffes, uh, even, you know, a series of, you know, high profile, um, you know, performances of incompetence, which I think is how you could best describe Sean Spicer's tenure as White House press secretary, that will actually sink you, right? You, you can always come back once you're in, you're sort of in. And so that's part of what I think that, um, that, the, the story of Sean Spicer sort of encapsulates. The other thing, though, that you're talking about is kind of a reality television, social media uh, uh, force, which is that, you know, being famous for being famous is now um, a pretty common phenomenon. And uh, I don't know how to reverse it. I don't know how to fix it. But the reality is, like, <laughs> Sean Spicer it almost didn't matter what he was famous for. The fact that he was famous allowed him to cash in and continue to be famous. Now, I don't know if he'll be famous forever, uh, but, you know, he's got a he's got a cable news show now and, uh, you know, he's on the speaking circuit and he seems to be doing pretty well for himself. And I, I do not know how you reverse that trend. I think that we might be stuck with it for a while. We will go to a gym next. Good evening, and I'm sorry I was a few minutes late, and thanks very much for bringing me up to the stage. Um, McKay, I love The Atlantic, and I would just highlight, I realize that these may not have been pieces you wrote, but after the Soleimani assassination, um, not only, of course, did Atlantic have, have one good write-up on it, like a lot of publications did, they could point to three others they had done over the last eight years that I think painted a tremendous picture, and it kind of reflects the, the stories I see in Atlantic all the time. Um, going back to Mormonism, the only thing I can really offer that I thought was of interest is a couple of weeks ago, I read a story about BYU facing a bit of an existential crisis. You know, BYU always being the, the bastion of Mormon academics, but BYU being a 21st century uh, university has, of course, adopted a lot more acceptance for um, gender identification, uh, promoting much more acceptance and, and, uh, and, and rightful uh, um, uh, 
consideration for LGBTQIA groups, you know, basic university sort of things in the 21st century, which are still running uh, a collision course into into modern Mormon culture. Just interested from a political standpoint, if you observed any of that or there's any perspective on BYU and their relationship there, what your thoughts were? Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I should say up front that I, I went to BYU. I studied journalism there, uh, continue to be a big fan of their football team, which is having a very good season. Um, but, you know, I, BYU, like so much, well, I guess I should back up. You know, it, I think it's not, it's not an accident that so many of our big divisive social debates, um, across American life, are sort of taking place on campuses. That's kind of always been the case, right? That university campuses are hotbeds for activism and debate. And it's often where you have very kind of theatrical clashes of different values and generational conflicts. And that's, you know, to a certain extent happening at BYU right now when it comes to uh, the internal tensions in Mormonism. Um, you know, a big part of that piece that I wrote for The Atlantic was looking at, um, you know, Mormonism at its 200th anniversary, which uh, was last year, kind of deciding what it wanted to be for its third century. And there is definitely conflict within Mormonism, like there is across the country, uh, between kind of old guard traditionalists and, um, you know, modern progressive ideas and, uh, you know, LGBTQ um, issues are kind of at the forefront of that for Mormonism, but they're not the only issues. Uh, th I think the thing you're alluding to right now is that BYU, as you mentioned, has become steadily kind of more progressive and inclusive on those issues, but, you know, still uh, as a university owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, holds to certain doctrinal ideas about, um, you know, gender norms and, and, uh, and sexuality that are at odds with a lot of kind of progressive ideas, uh, that dominate, you know, the current academic landscape. And so those tensions are playing out, you know, students are protesting, um, administrators are trying to strike the right balance. Church leaders are trying to strike the right balance. And I, I, you know, I think that it's just one microcosm for this broader, uh, idea that Mormonism is still trying to find its way into its third century. And I, I think it's fascinating to watch it play out. Um, obviously, you know, it's very emotional for a lot of people. It's very difficult. Uh, but I do think that these kind of conversations are really constructive, constructive and in a lot of ways necessary. And I think to a certain extent, they're only going to happen at BYU, uh, because it is, it provides the right mix of, um, you know, religious orthodoxy and free, th free thought and expression. And I think that's where a lot of these uh, debates are going to play out. Thank you for that question, Jim. I prefer the full-time columnists to the guest columnists at The Atlantic. But, uh, McKay, I'm going to have one question for you, and then we'll give you last words here. Uh, it's kind of a, a you know pithy question here, but I, I, watch, I watch college football. I'm a sports fanatic as much as I am a po college uh, a political fanatic. And I was watching my team, uh, Boston College, flipped over to ESPN, and they said that they're not allowed to call the BYU-Utah game the Holy War anymore. For anybody in the audience that doesn't watch college football, <laughs> the Holy War is like the, one of the biggest rivalries. It's been long-lasting. Um, so I guess my question is, is it offensive or is this PC culture run amok? Because the name is great if, if it's not a well, so I'm going to like, I'm going to claim ignorance here that I knew that like I hadn't heard the term on TV a lot recently. I didn't know that this was like an official ban. Uh, the, the announcer goes, the, the announcer goes, we have a game between BYU and Utah and we're not allowed to call it its name anymore. And like he just said it out loud because he was about to call it the Holy War. Um, so yeah, it's an official ban from ESPN. Um, I, I, respect the reasons that probably very good reasons for why we shouldn't call a college football rivalry a holy war i think in my heart of hearts i will always think of it as the holy war and so maybe that answers your question <laughs> well as a boston by the way 
By the way, I just want to point out that uh, BYU beat Utah this year. I, just, I couldn't let the, let that opportunity pass without without making that point. Somebody just messaged me. I'm a Boston College fan. That the holy war is between Boston College and Notre Dame, the Jesuits. Right. Is right. Still holy. War. <laughs> so, uh, and I agree. But um, anyways, uh, this has been a great chat, McKay. I got to thank you from the bottom of uh, my heart. You kept your word to us. You said you were going to come on. You came on. Before we go, what do you want to leave us with? It can be on the GOP, media, Mormonism. Uh, it can be positive, negative, somewhere in between. Give us some words of wisdom before you part. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any good words of wisdom. I mean, look, I'll, here's what I would say. I'm very heartened by, uh, I, I love this this project that you have. I love the, the kind of nuanced uh, and civil you know, tone of the conversation that people are generally uh, curious and like actually have questions to ask and want to discuss things in a productive way. I think we could use like way, way more of that in the media. Um, just as somebody who has, you know, been doing this for long enough now that uh, I, I, you know, in a lot of ways burned out and exhausted by the discourse. It is, you know, any anything any of us can do to create opportunities for, you know, civil, good faith, um, curiosity-driven conversations about what's happening in the world, I think the better. And so we, we should just all be trying to do more of that. That is all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to McKay for coming out, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. If you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to find out how to join us live almost every day of the week, maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. This has been Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. 